Welcome to Beg to Differ, the Bulwark's weekly roundtable discussion featuring civil conversation across the political spectrum from center left to center right. I'm Mona Charon, syndicated columnist and policy editor at The Bulwark, and I am joined by our regulars, Bill Galston of the Brookings Institution and the Wall Street Journal, Damon Linker of The Week, and Linda Chavez of the Niskanen Center. Our special guest this week is Ted Johnson of the Brennan Center for Justice and the NYU Law School. Good to be back, ladies and gentlemen, and I want to thank uh, Sarah Longwell for sitting in for me last week. Fabulous job. Much appreciated. And let's get right to it. This is a this is a special edition of Beg to Differ. We're going to devote the whole uh, hour to um, Ted Johnson's wonderful new book, When the Stars Begin to Fall. So thank you so much, Ted, for joining us. Why don't you start us off by telling us where the title comes from? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and thank you all for um, for having me here. This is uh, I, this is like the exact kind of conversation I've been hoping to have with the the exact kind of people I've been hoping to have it with. So I'm, I'm kind of uh, excited about it. Uh, so when the stars begin to fall, it, it's it kind of has a dual meaning here. Um, the first is a kind of superficial um, meaning, um, which is to say that uh, just given the words when the stars begin to fall, it immediately draws to mind the American flag. And in fact, the book has that kind of iconography on it. Um, the, the idea here is that either we figure out how to create this multiracial, egalitarian, liberal, constitutional democracy, um, and the stars will fall into place as we've created this thing the world has never seen before, or we will fail, and the stars will sort of fall out of the sky as this project, this experiment, collapses on itself, um, because it turns out maybe we aren't the people who could bring the thing to fruition. So it signals the challenge um, ahead, uh, both for the country, but but the challenge that I sort of uh, lay out in the book, um, in hopes that the reader will leave it with a hope and an optimism about our, our country and, and not feel like the, the, the thing is too big for us. But, uh, you know, quickly, it, the, the actual words come from a Negro spiritual from the days of slavery uh, when those who were enslaved would want to sing for, you know, while working for their emancipation, their liberty, and were prevented from doing so. And so what they would do is cloak their desire for emancipation in Christian theology, which was, of course, widely acceptable uh, for, for uh, those who were enslaved to, to practice. And so ostensibly, the song is about when the stars begin to fall and sort of all the believers, their souls are sent to heaven and a new world is created. But what they were saying is uh, the rapture for them is emancipation. When the chains are loosened, when bondage is loosened, and they get to enjoy the fullness of the American experiment as equal citizens enjoying all the rights and privileges of citizenship, things they could not demand or, or ask for explicitly. So they did so through song and, uh, and used Christian theology as a way to as cover for it. Excellent. Um, I I very much enjoyed reading your book. I learned a tremendous amount uh, from it, um, and um, your your family's personal stories were some of the most um, riveting uh, aspects of this of this 
tale, including the fact that you, your, um, what was it, your great-grandfather or your grandfather was the first to be named after Theodore Roosevelt, which is where you get your name, right. Theodore Roosevelt Johnson, um, which was so interesting. That was a tribute to him for having Booker T. Washington to dinner at the White House. Um, and uh, just just fascinating personal um, uh, stories that you brought to this. But but let me and and I could spend just an hour going into your own personal experience in the right. military and elsewhere. But I'd like to get to your arguments. And and I know everybody else is also eager to to jump in. So I'm going to start with your contention um, that racism is an existential threat to the country. And I'd like you to elaborate on that because somebody could say, look, racism is horrible. It's our original sin. It has always soiled the American experiment. But what makes you say that in 2021, the threat of racism is existential? Yeah, and, and this is the core argument of the book upon which everything else in, in the book is, is structured or, or built on. So the claim is that structural racism is an existential threat to America. Um, I say structural racism because I want to separate this conversation from the way people feel in their hearts and, and not talk about uh, a group's feelings towards another group's, but talk about the way our society is built, the way it's structured, and how those structures have advantages and disadvantages baked into them. So that's, that's, that's the, the first thing. The second thing is that um, when I say an existential threat to America, I'm making a distinction between America, the set of ideals, the promise of America that we're all created equal, that we have these unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, that, uh, that our government derives its power from the consent of the governed, and the nation state, the United States, which is just a geopolitical entity that's chasing its interests in an amoral fashion. Um, doesn't consider whether something's right or wrong, good or bad. It only considers whether something is in its interest to do or not. And so the claim that um, racism, structural racism, is an existential threat to America is basically that we cannot have a society that perpetuates and exacerbates racial inequality and be a society built on the idea that we're all created equal with certain unalienable rights that among these are life, liberty, pursuit of happiness. Okay, so either as we get closer to the promise of America, racial inequality recedes, or we live in a society that perpetuates racial inequality and it pushes us further away from the idea of America upon which the nation state is said to be founded. So this is why, why the United States has proven in its history that sometimes it can live quite comfortably with the idea of racism, whether it's the institution of slavery, what it's done to natives, white immigrants, uh, immigrants from around the world, Jim Crow, et cetera, the nation state can survive it. Um, but the idea of America cannot. And if we don't bring those two things into alignment, or at least uh, incrementally do so, you know, continue the journey of doing so, then um, the nation that will result is not the America of our professed ideals. It's not the America of, of the, the rhetoric in our canon. It is some other nation, some other state that um, talks a good game about equality, but it, in actuality produces something that's, that's quite far from it. Bill Galston, I want to bring you in uh, to this conversation. You um, have been writing last couple of weeks uh, about uh, critical race theory. And uh, while Ted doesn't specifically mention t critical race theory in this book, I, I think it's fair to say, Ted, you can correct me if I'm wrong, that it does imbue some of your arguments to some degree. For example, you you advance the case that um, 
that colorblindness, for example, is just not um, just not effective and and not a solution to uh, to what ails us, uh, which is right. something that the critical race theorists also say. So, Bill, um, over to you. Uh, you know, back to you, Ted. Uh, I am much more interested, for the purposes of this hour, in what you think than what I think, uh, and so. I won't be presenting you with counter arguments unless you force me into it, but I do have a few questions uh, that I'd like to put to you, not all at once, uh, that may prove clarifying. So let's start with Monas, uh, which I'll take over. Uh, how would you situate your thinking, your mode of analysis, the premises of your argument, vis-a-vis critical race theory, which has moved to the, the center of political argument, creating a lot more heat than light, in my opinion. Yeah, it's a great question. And frankly, um, it, you, you know, when I wrote the book, no one was talking about critical race theory except critical race theorists. And, and now it is, um, on, on, everyone is, is talking about it. And so uh, Mona's right that there is some intersection with the way I situate the problem in our country and then the argument in critical race theory. Here is what I would say. One, I think, and this is a, a, a big distinction that, I don't know, maybe get me into trouble or not, uh, but my book, I think, is a patriotic examination of structural racism. And I don't know that critical race theorists would suggest that their view of America is a patriotic one. It may be a realistic one. It may be a pragmatic one. Uh, it may be one that is very comfortable with critiquing uh, the, who the nation is and the gap between who it, who it is and who it says it is. And I'm actually all good with all those things. I, I also critique the nation. Um, I also am very pragmatic in my, my approach and, and my suggestions. But I lean into patriotism in a way that I don't think the theory does. And, um, and, and that is one distinction. Uh, the, the other is that um, the more this becomes part of the popular conversation, the public conversation, um, critical race theory is, is, uh, is, is sort of collapsed onto like anti-whiteness, um, to sort of uh, a, a view that the um, that America is irredeemably racist, that sort of thing. And I, my book does not um, really follow either of those arguments. Um, I, I don't think America is irredeemably racist. Um, I don't think the problem of structural racism is for white people to solve while the West, rest of us wait for their, their making amends for, for the sins of their fathers. Um, I very much think that the future of this country hinges on sacrifice and forbearance from all of us, uh, that it hinges on us not demonizing one another, but uh, forming a multiracial national solidarity and holding the state accountable for under-delivering on the promise. And, and, in, and in these ways, uh, both in the approach to the problem of racism and in the solutions on how to mitigate racism's effects, I think there's some distinctions between where critical race theory sits and then what I'm proposing in the book. Um, could I let me jump in there? Um, I agree. It, your your book is deeply uh, patriotic, um, at least from my from my reading. Um, but you do consistently make a distinction that I'd like you to elaborate on here, um, since you just mentioned it. You you say that the um, that racism is a crime of the state, and you're at pains to say it's really not so much a matter of interpersonal feelings. 
um, by individuals, but it is a crime of the state. And I'm wondering whether that distinction can really survive if you look at the way people vote and the way people express themselves in groups. And, uh, are, you know, is there such a, a sharp distinction between the people and the government? Uh, another good question. And actually, I wrestled with this uh, quite a bit. I mean, it's, it's one thing to say that a nation state is amoral, but when a nation is composed of moral or at least sentient beings, there has to be some kind of morality that influences what the nation considers its interests to be. Uh, and so there, there's not a bright line distinction there, but but there is a distinction um, in, the, in, in the assertion that racism is more than just interpersonal stuff, and certainly the kind that, that threatens the country. Um, it, it, is, it is rather the actions of the state, or, or as I say, a crime of the state. And this is because making it a crime of the state or framing it this way puts the burden of correcting what's broken in the country on the nation state, which is to suggest that the fixes will come through public policy, instead of suggesting that uh, racism is an interpersonal condition it, by, it, in which people have to come to together and, and, you know, with civility and compassion and grace and learn to understand one another on a deeper level, and that the state has no, um, no responsibility in this. If we, if we look at the founding of the country, the Civil War, the civil rights movements, the state's actions often preceded the morality of most of the nation on these questions, um, it, it, which is to say that public policy helped the nation become more racially equal, not the other way around. People didn't sort of find the humanity and dignity of, of enslaved black people and force Lincoln to go to war in order to liberate them. Lincoln went to war to save the Union, and a byproduct of that was the abolition of slavery. And so if, if this is how our nation has operated for the last 245 years plus, that public policy precedes uh, personal attitudes about other racial groups, then the fact that racial inequality persists is a product of that public policy, either historical or contemporary, and which which also means that it's incumbent upon the state to make amends for for the things that that fall short of our professed ideals of, of equality and freedom and liberty. So it's um, I, I I do recognize that there are moral actors that hold the reins of state, um, but as most political scientists know that the state is often responsive to certain cohorts of Americans, not to sort of the will of the people to the extent that it can be decide, uh, you know, determined. Uh, and so the, the, the state, I, I, I feel comfortable in, in considering it as an entity that uh, is amoral, even if it has moral actors or immoral actors w within it. Even those actors can, can be commandeered by the interests of the state. Linda, um, you're on deck, but, but, but forgive me for just jumping ahead for, for one quick second, because I want to follow up on something that Ted just said. Do you worry, though, about the effects that state action has in exacerbating racism? So, and, and here I'm talking about things like white backlash or like the perception you talk in the book about, you know, there's this, uh, you know, polling shows that there are a great many white people who think that at the moment, the biggest threat of racism is reverse racism, what they would say, you know, that, that, that whites are the most put upon. And, um, 
And, you know, while many people would roll their eyes at such a suggestion, there's no question that uh, policies that are race conscious, like affirmative action, like race-based admissions, which you note, again, most people of all races oppose, that those kinds of policies, well-intentioned though they may be, have the potential to exacerbate racial feelings. Yes. So you're absolutely right that the nation state can exacerbate racial tensions, uh, racial inequality. In fact, it's done that for for the vast majority of its history. It, it, it approached society in a color-conscious way by putting uh, a certain cohort of white Americans at the top of the racial hierarchy and oppressing all others below and structured public policy in a way that exacerbated the inequality that the structure they built entrenched. Um, Post-civil rights movement, for example, uh, we, we have decided that maybe that wasn't the best way to do things and, and, have, and have begun undoing some of the racial inequality by putting in, you know, passing either new constitutional amendments after the Civil War or sweeping legislation like the Civil Rights Act of 64 or 65. Now, the nation state, um, if it is incentivized, if it's in its interest not to address existing racial inequality or to exacerbate existing racial tensions for political expedience, it will do so. The fact that, um, that, that our government is fighting over whether or not to investigate what happened on January 6th is an example of how the nation state is not governed by a sense of morality or even in pursuit of, of you know, pro-democratic pro um, activities or, or views of America. Uh, so this is why that second part of the promise uh, that government derives its power from the consent of the governed is so important. Government can exacerbate racial inequality when there's no penalty for doing so. And the penalty is often the will of the people expressing dissatisfaction with their Congress folks, with their mayors or governors or whatever. But there's a penalty to be paid for those who are explicitly racist or a penalty to be paid for those who exacerbate racial inequality or racism. And there, right now in our politics, there is very little penalty to be paid to those actors at the nation state federal level or at the state level that are doing things that produce racial, uh, increased racial inequality. So the, the shortfall there is not just government not doing enough, but that the people are not holding the government accountable for falling short of the protections that are guaranteed in our constitution and that are entrenched in legislation that passed that, you know, that was passed after uh, certain constitutional amendments. So to the extent we are falling short as a nation and to the extent uh, the nation state or political and economic actors, uh, those with the most power, are exacerbating racial inequality and racial tensions, it is because it is expedient for them to do so. It is because there is no social, political, or economic penalty for their doing so, and, and or, or at least not to the extent but that would cause them to change their actions or their behaviors. So it's on us. And this is why the book calls for this kind of multiracial national solidarity in order to hold the state accountable for things that it would never do unless it, there is a penalty for not acting. Okay. As we're fond of saying on this podcast, the people are the problem. <laughs> um, all right, Linda, you're up. Okay. Well, first of all, let me say that, uh, Ted, this is an absolutely beautifully written book. Oh, thank you so much. Um, it is uh, your your personal stories, the way in which you tell the story of American uh, America, and as Mona has already suggested, your overwhelming patriotism comes through. I mean, you served your country uh, in the military, uh, and your love of America comes through loud and clear. 
uh, in this book. And I truly appreciated that. I also appreciated learning about some things I didn't know about Jehu Grant, um, right. who served in the Revolutionary War. I thought I knew all those stories. I did not know about him. So I learned a lot in the book. However, um, I did have major disagreements with it. And my first disagreement is the way in which you look at America as a black and white nation. I mean, this is all about white America and black America. Blacks are 13% of the population. Hispanics are now uh, closing in on 20% of the population. Asians are about 6% of the population. Uh, and non-Hispanic whites are 60%. So we are already truly multiracial. There is also a tremendous amount of intermarriage, not so much between blacks and whites, um, I will grant you, uh, but among Hispanics and among Asians in the third generation, there is tremendous uh, intermarriage, all of which makes racial identity much more complicated. Um, the second problem, though, and, and probably the more profound problem I have, is I am of the John Roberts School. I believe that the way to stop discriminating is to stop discriminating. And I believe in the colorblind uh, ideal uh, as one that we should strive for. And I, um, I agree with you that there are some structures uh, in the United States where racism has so perverted the market um, that it is very difficult just to say, well, let's stop discriminating now because it's baked in. The housing market uh, is a prime example of that. Housing discrimination, while it is certainly not what it was prior to 1968 when the housing, Fair Housing Act passed, um, it still exists. Uh, we still we live more integrated lives than we have in the past, but we are certainly not a perfectly integrated community. And housing values are very much affected by the racial and ethnic composition um, of the neighborhood. And so those, um, since you know, houses are the uh, major source of wealth uh, of most Americans, that has a way of, of affecting other things. But I do believe that the idea that we only can look at structural racism, that we don't look at individuals, individual prejudice, which I think is different than discrimination. One can be prejudiced, um, but if it is against the law to discriminate, we hope that you still act in a non-discriminatory fashion, no matter what is in your heart and mind. I think prejudice has grown tremendously over the last uh, 10 years. Uh, I think that the election of Donald Trump um, fed into uh, the idea that you could be prejudiced, express those prejudiced views, that there was no shame in it. And as a result, I think we have more of it today. But I, I guess what I want to ask you is tell me why becoming more race conscious, all of us deciding you know, that our racial identities have to be first and foremost in our minds, how that's going to lead us to a more equitable society and one in which discrimination is less a factor. Yeah. 
All great questions and and um, and really good observations and, and things that I wrestled with in the presentation of these ideas. Um, so to the first point about um, how multiracial our, our nation already is, of course you're absolutely right. And um, I, what the book tries to do is show the lessons that the Black American experience has for crafting um, a national solidarity. But it also says that this isn't, black Americans don't hold the key, that we are just one of many experiences that should be integrated into uh, learning how to craft a national solidarity. And so it talks about, um, you know, the value of, of white immigrants and or immigrants from, from across the world and Native Americans and, and other groups, women, for example, that were prevented access to the fullness of the rights and privileges of citizenship and had to fight their way to be included. And every group that's ever had to do that in our nation's history has lessons for how to make America be a better version of itself. And this book is specific to the Black experience. Um, but and so, so that's why it, it doesn't suggest that, that our world, our country is a Black-White binary on the question of race. It just says, given the page count and my, my, my experience, uh, this is, I'm, I'm tackling it from this angle. But it does point out a few things to suggest that what I'm uncovering here is not specific to the Black-White experience or interaction, but that it is a broader commentary on racism in this multiracial society. Um, and, uh, and when we think about our moments of the greatest national unity in the last hundred years, they're almost always in wartime. After World War II and with, you know, the, the um, war garden, the victory gardens and, and all these things, but, you know, Japanese Americans were interned, um, constitutionally so, um, and American citizens, Japanese Americans, because that, that, is, that is a product of racism. We were also at war with Germany and Italy, and we didn't go around rounding up German-Americans or Italian-Americans, only the Japanese ones. Um, after 9-11, uh, if you were Muslim in this country, or if you were at a mosque, or if you were a Sikh, um, you were subjected to more violence and more hate crimes, even in this moment of tremendous national unity after a terrorist attack. In the wake of coronavirus, Asian-American uh, hate crimes against Asian-Americans has gone up. I mean, families being stabbed in Walmart. So it, this is just, just to show that if we talk about the challenge racism pre, uh, presents to a well-functioning democracy, then uh, whether we think about it in the, the Black experience or the Asian-American experience or, or the experience of white immigrants, especially those early 20th century, late 19th century, there's a lot of rhythm uh, between these stories of oppression, violence, and then fights for inclusion. So I, I take your point, um, but, but I do want to, to suggest that there, um, that there is a bigger story being told in this microcosm of a story that I try to tell. The second piece here is, um, is, is really interesting because the words matter so much. When Thurgood Marshall argued Brown v. Board before the Supreme Court, he was arguing explicitly for a colorblind America. He says it in, in interviews around that time, and it's because America at the time was a color-conscious society. If you were black, you could not vote in certain states. You couldn't ride on in, in certain parts of the bus or the train. And if you were white, then you had certain access, you know, to like the GI Bill or to, to public schools, et cetera. So we had a color conscious society. And the argument of the way to get out of that color conscious society was using colorblind argumentation that skin color should not be determinant of one's life chances. But then post the civil rights movement, really post the, the sweeping reforms across all three branches of government between 1948 and 1968, what that showed was, okay, it is now unacceptable to be this explicit racist um, th th that we've seen in the country, and we're going to start um, uh, 
where equality, no matter your race, is sort of the, the, the rule of the day. And so let's move out forward. The problem with that is, is that you can't just undo all of the damage done by two centuries, three, four centuries of policy um, with a declaration that, you know, signing the Civil Rights Act of 64 and the Voting Rights Act of 65 and saying racism is now no longer acceptable. And so in order to address the damage that color conscious policies caused, um, you have to have color conscious policies to fix. Now, this is different than sort of suggesting that this means we have to support reparations or we have to support affirmative action. This just says when we craft policy, we shouldn't just craft one idea to apply, to blanket the whole nation with and hope that it fixes the problem for everyone, no matter what it is. Um, it, we, we shouldn't, if, if there are poor underperforming schools in Appalachia full of white poor students, and there are poor underperforming schools in, in inner city Baltimore filled with black and brown students, the fix for those schools is not standardized testing for everyone. And, and, uh, and now let's see, you know, we, there's a colorblind solution to the problem of educational outcomes. Now go forth and fix it. You have to account for the history of Appalachia. You have to account for the set of problems that are facing indigent white families in the mountains, which is different from the history of, of poverty in black America and the, the, the way that inner cities are structured. And so by color conscious, I mean just accounting for a group's history and their identity in order to understand the specific set of challenges preventing them from touching the American dream, the American promise, and then tailoring policy specific to those folks. Um, and so that, uh, I mean, hopefully that, that it, it doesn't suggest that you lead with your racial or ethnic identity. It simply says that America is a big enough idea where our, our identities can be matrixed. I can be a black man, a military veteran, and an American and prioritize none of those identities and subjugate none of those identities and still fulfill the promise of the country. In fact, not subjugating them and allowing all of them full expression and, and maintaining solidarity across lines of difference is the fulfillment, in my, in my mind, of the promise of America. Uh, Mona, could I just briefly uh, sure. follow up with that? Because yeah, yeah. Um, I think that's very interesting clarification and I appreciate it. One of the things that I thought was uh, tragic about the Baki decision back in 1978, I think it was, was that the court in its very uh, peculiar uh, mix of opinion, but the dominant opinion that came through uh, in the Baki decision, which had to do with affirmative action in higher education, was to get rid of the notion of trying to do something affirmatively in order to help those uh, who had been discriminated against in the past overcome the disadvantage that that discrimination had caused. And the court explicitly rejected that mm -hmm. um, as a notion and instead celebrated the notion of diversity, that we are promoting uh, giving a special consideration if you happen to be black uh, in order to promote the diversity of college. And I always thought that was very wrongheaded because what you're talking about is exactly right. A history of discrimination, particularly in education and in housing uh, and even in voting, mm -hmm. had consequences. And those consequences have to be dealt with. I mean, you know, if you could in fact improve the quality of elementary and secondary education so that the black children in inner city Baltimore are getting the same uh, kinds of education that my kids did in suburban Montgomery County, Maryland, mm. um, you know, then you wouldn't necessarily have to have 
uh, other kinds of forms. So if you could just, you know, just speak to that for a minute, why it was we gave up on the notion of trying to close these gaps and trying to make up for the effects of past discrimination. Yeah, so some of it, I think, is, frankly, it's cultural. Uh, we are a society that, that doesn't particularly like when groups get something that is not available to other groups, uh, even if what is available to them is because of something that's been done wrong to them or their, their uh, forefathers, you know, a, a while ago. And so the diversity argument is all of us benefit from a diverse college neighborhood, school system, et cetera, no one is cheated out of anything by creating diversity. Now, the means by which we create that diversity, some are acceptable. Um, you know, it, it's okay to consider race as one of many factors in college admissions, but it's not okay to do racial quotas or set-asides because that's unconstitutional. So we argue uh, about the means of doing this, but most folks in polite society and, and beyond will su suggest, you know, it's a pretty good, it's, it's good that America is a diverse nation, that it is generally a strength. And then we disagree on the, how we pursue that diversity. So I think that was an expedient argument for the court to make because it's, it sort of finds the common ground among the vast majority of society and appeals to that thing to suggest this is why, you, you know, um, we made the decision we did. Um, but the other decision, which I agree with you would have been a better one, would be to say because black Americans experience a specific harm in our country, because immigrants from South America or Central America have a different set of experiences in Texas than, um, you know, the grandchildren of Irish immigrants in Boston have and, you know, working class neighborhoods there, even though all their schools are not delivering what they should, um, we should figure out how to fix it for them. And if that means that this school district gets a little bit more money, more teachers, um, whatever, then the neighboring school district, which may be filled with white middle-class students, that may be the right solution to level the playing field, but it is bad politics um, to suggest that you're going to give something to one group that's not available to others simply because of the racial group. And, and we have divisive leaders that will point this out repeatedly and that will build a constituency based on the grievance that the, the nation trying to redress wrongs is somehow discriminating against people who did nothing wrong themselves. And that is a powerful argument that unfortunately seems to, uh, to be on the winning side of the ledger um, you know, these days. Too often. I, may I just jump in here? Because I, I, with a personal observation, um, back during the early days of the Tea Party movement, um, I was of the view that these people were motivated by, you know, what they said, that they felt, you know, that we, the government spending was out of control. They were worried about budget deficits. They were worried about the perceived irresponsibility of just shoveling so much cash out the, out the door. What would this do to our, uh, to the, to, to the, the, the value of the currency and on and on. And I took them at their word. And then experience showed um, that many of the exact same people, when right. Trump was in the White House, um, and uh, and once again the government was being incredibly irresponsible with the federal fisc, uh, there was absolutely not a peep. They weren't worried about it at all, which tends to suggest that I was naive in believing that race, or at least the perception, let's put it this way, the perception may have been on the part of many people who formed the Tea Party movement, or at least some, 
that it wasn't so much that we were being irresponsible about how we were spending money, but rather that we had a black president and that other people who were not like us were getting this money. Mm -hmm. That was probably a part, I don't know how much, but it was probably a part of what motivated that movement. And uh, and so who gets what and the perception of of who gets what has, you know, affects this country. It affects, by the way, plenty of other countries, too, where those kinds of ethnic uh, spoil systems are in place and people People are very, as you keep saying in the book, you know, there is a deep part of our psyche that thinks of the world as people like me and people not like me. And, That's right. Um, and well, unfortunately, it, yeah. And I, I do want to say on, on this Tea Party thing, I, so I, I was, I, you know, I can't say that I saw it real time happening, that this was really not about budgets and deficits, but about a black president. But it wasn't long after that, uh, because I, at the time I was active duty military, and, you know, I would sometimes be on these email chains among my fellow officers um, that would talk about, that would pass on memes um, that originated in sort of this Tea Party movement, but that would, you know, it was very clear that they were racially motivated um, insults uh, mm-hmm. geared towards the president and not really about, you know, democratic policy about spending, you know, even after a recession. So I got a sense of it in about 2011 that these folks aren't really mad about spending. Um, they're mad about something else, that this disruption to their, their conception of, of who and what is truly American. But what complicates it is the Tea Party movement is also responsible for Marco Rubio, Nikki Haley, Tim Scott, Bobby Jindal, Alan right. West, Ted Cruz. There are a lot yeah. of Republicans of color who swept into office on the back of the Tea Party movement by talking about fiscal austerity. But what they were doing mostly, um, I think, in hindsight and even contemporarily during the time, one is that they were uh, attacking the other party. And they were sort of making Democrats to be the, the spin fervently party, we're the party of fiscal conservatism. Uh, and so they were speaking the language, which allowed people to, to cling to their partisan identity, try to sort of find commonality with them on partisanship or ideology, and maybe mute whatever racial resentment they may have held because they saw them as, um, as sort of uh, brothers in arms in, in, the, in the fight for, for conservatism. Uh, but also what they do is they provide a cover for you are calling me racist because I'm chastising President Obama for this thing. And I just voted to make Senator Tim Scott my congressperson or, you know, make Tim Scott my congressperson and then voted for him to be my senator. So how can I be racist when I'm voting for a black man to hold statewide office or Bobby Jindal, you know, an Indian man to be statewide or Nikki Haley? And I'm racist against this Democratic president. And the the, the, the that the sort of the moral high ground that that sort of political electoral behavior provided um, also complicates the narrative that Tea Party was racist, anti-Obama, and nothing else. It was... uh, Absolutely. And and the nothing else part is important to stress because it was clearly clearly not just racial feeling, and it's important to to, uh, caveat that. Okay, poor Damon has been so patient. Damon, you're up. (laughs) I promise to stop filibustering here. (laughs) No, you're not. You're not. We keep interrupting. No, no, that's fine. Um, well, uh, thanks. I- I'm glad to be able to, to uh, say hello and uh, congratulate you on the book. I hope it's a, a great success. I-, I really do appreciate uh, some things that uh, some of the other panelists have commented on about the book. A- and it is, you know, one of the big 
things about it that I, I hope gets it some attention is the, the way you do synthesize um, a really kind of clarion call for racial justice in America, which a lot of people will associate with what is called uh, critical uh, race theory um, these days. Uh, but you do combine it with the patriotism and a very uplifting, ennobled vision of the country in a way that uh, I think is welcome and really does point toward the only positive outcome of this renewed focus on race in the last few years. I mean, the only way, in my view, that this is going to end up anywhere positive for the country is if it goes in a more affirmative, patriotic direction for the simple fact that, I mean, I've written a lot of things that are quite critical of the 1619 Project and some of what's called critical race theory, not so much for the substance of what people are talking about. I think a lot of the articles in the 1619 Project in the New York Times were very worthwhile and historically rich and interesting and, and worth reading and grappling with, but more the kind of radical framing of it to, to say, as the initial display copy in the Times said, that uh, 1619 is the true founding of America, meaning 1776 is not the arrival of the, of, uh, the first settlers in, in January. Jamestown was were not, but but the the arrival of the first slaves that's the essence of America. Or also as the uh, as some of the uh, accompanying language originally said, also that uh, that slavery and its legacy is at the very center of America, not a very important aspect of America or even a central aspect of America, but the very center. And right. those kind of, that kind of recourse to hype and uh, hyperbole in the language and in the framing of things has, has a lot of, you know, use in our public rhetoric these days. It gets attention. It's like ringing the fire bell. Uh, and getting people to pay attention to a problem, but it, it tends to polarize the argument and get people who are potential allies to kind of run to the other side and say, whoa, I'm not willing to go that far and sort of right. say the country as a whole is condemned because of this very unfortunate strand in our history that remains pertinent today. But the question I have for you, given that you do in the book rely on some of that kind of hot rhetoric in things like, as you talked about at the very top of the podcast, you talk about um, uh, how racism and its its continuance in America is an existential crisis for the country, even if it isn't literally threatening the existence of the entire nation or its government, but instead uh, it, it's threatening its our highest ideals uh, and principles, the promise, as you put it, of America. I, I'm curious your thoughts about why why do you think that this is happening now? Of course, there's Trump and the kind of kind of backlash against Trump, the kind of shock that a man who was the, you know, the leading and first birther uh, in America to actually rise to the presidency uh, after right. becoming notorious. I mean, he obviously has a long record in our public life uh, of, of being uh, there at the margins and, and on, on reality TV, but to actually, he launched his political career by insinuating and then outright claiming that the first black president of the United States was not even a legitimate 
uh, citizen, or at least could not legitimately hold the presidency because he wasn't born here, and it was just an outright right. racist lie. So some of it is that. Um, but l- let me suggest one thing quickly to you and see just your reaction to it. Like, I, I, I if we take as a microcosm the, the writer Tennessee Coates, um, and he's had a huge influence, I think, on the rise of a kind of more militant left critique of race in America over the last half decade or so. And I think if you read him through the Obama administration, you saw an evolution where from hope when Obama was first elected that somehow, I think at some level he might have um, he might have allowed himself to believe some of the rhetoric that surrounded the initial Obama campaign, that mm-hmm. if we can elect a black man to be president of the United States, that might mean we finally nixed it. We finally purged the sin. We finally have it, have had it expiated and we can move on as one, as Americans. And then, of course, he won 53% of the vote, which by recent standards is quite high. And right. there was all of this, all of this enthusiasm about Obama. And then a very quickly a crash, which I think you trace in the book to, uh, to what happened when uh, uh, Henry Louis Gates uh, got arrested outside of his house in Cambridge, Massachusetts, because people thought he was breaking into his own home and the police took him away. And, and that led to a kind of polarized racial response. But to get back to Coates, you can see over the stretch of the Obama administration, as we started to see um, cell phones picking up a video record of people being beaten, black men and women killed by white police officers, and then and then protests in black neighborhoods and, and white police officers basically rolling like military gear into the neighborhood, threatening them with a kind of militarized response uh, for their outraged protest at the deaths. It's as if there was a curdling in the body politic, a kind of profound disappointment, uh, disappointed idealism that somehow it isn't gone. It's still here. Uh, what Aristotle referred to as a mistake at the beginning of a founding mm. of a country, that if there's a mistake at the beginning, and our founding mistake is, of course, slavery, that if you have a mistake woven into the beginning of a country where we say we believe in the promise of America, universal human equality and rights, and then you have slavery at the same time, that creates a contradiction in our country that probably can never be fully expiated. And so, I mean, do you, how do you respond to that suggestion that a lot of this, of course, Trump has a lot to do with it, but it's also it's Trump following Obama. It's Obama and hopes being raised very, very high and then crashing on the rocks of a recalcitrant American reality of racial um, imperfection, to put it uh, in a very uh, restrained way. Imperfection meaning actually something much worse than that, something like an enduring sin that right. still remains. Yeah. Um, so, so first on the 1619 project, um, you know, Nicole Hannah Jones's opening essay 
uh, talks, she opens with her military veteran father who raises an American flag every morning and, and how she is raising a household where there's this reverence for the flag. She ends the essay talking about if she were back in this classroom where, teacher, where the teacher was asking all her students to point to the place on the globe where your family originated and all her white students are pointing to places in Europe and she can't find the nation in sub-Saharan Africa um, because of, of how slavery worked, she says, I would have told, you know, if I could do it again, I would have pointed right at the United States to suggest this is my nation of origin. That is, to my mind, extremely an extremely patriotic look at the black experience in, in our country. It is a particularly, um, a, like a particular black view of patriotism, but it's, in my view, patriotism nonetheless. But, but to your point about the claim about it being the original founding, you know, I... I I, I hear both um, the, the project's argument for why that is and, and the backlash to it, but it's not original in that there have been other moments pre-1776 that historians or political scientists will sort of say the embers of what we became were fashioned in this moment. You, I mean, like Bacon's Rebellion in 1676 and this backlash against the monarchy, um, a lot of the stuff in his manifesto find, finds its way into the Declaration of Independence. You know, we read the first two paragraphs, but the 80% of that document is a list of grievances against the, 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 the king and the empire for problems with taxation, problems with the military, problems with representation. So if someone were to write a, a, a um, you know, a 200 and... Uh, or the 350th anniversary of Bacon's Rebellion in five years on, on a full project and say 1676 is when the, you know, the, the, is the true founding of the United States of America. There would be pushback to it, but without that racial element, that 1619 connotes, it would not be nearly as severe. And this kind of gets to the book's broader thesis. That is when you pluck that strum of racism, it exacerbates all divisions all the isms, classism, sexism, you know, all the inequalities because of our particular history with race in this country. And so some of that backlash is because it suggested the moment that black people arrived in the United States is a particularly salient moment. Um, and, and that, I think, tracks with how Obama, the backlash to Obama with the Tea Party movement and Donald Trump, how that comes to be. That it's, the, it's born of the same impulse. Um, and, and I'm sort of speaking in superlatives here, not to suggest everyone who would disagrees with 1619 is, is a, a, in allegiance with those folks, but that that the the reason this is of particular interest all the way through to her, you know, the tenure appointment or not at Carolina is sort of built out of the same thing that Obama challenged and that the 1619 project challenged, which sort of gets to the second part of, of your question about um, the identity of America. When, when our identity, our nature, our character is challenged, uh, there, there is a real backlash to it, and that often happens along racial lines because our biggest shortcomings have happened because of issues of race. So with Coates, you know, you, you have this moment um, across lines of race, even party. John McCain's concession speech on the night of 2008, I think, is a testament to the American civil religion, to a multiracial national solidarity, to a patriotic view of a nation that is imperfect. I mean, it just, he, call, he, he, he says all the right things for this very historic night. Uh, and a lot of folks felt that this did signal a, a change in the nation, in our character, our identity, and in our nature. Some folks re rejected that, that sense of change, but the vast majority of folks, even those uh, you know who didn't vote for Obama, recognize this isn't something that we should just ignore. Like we should 
sort of take stock here. The, the issue with black Americans in particular is that the expectation, unspoken as it was, I mean, Obama clearly says, I am the president of America, I'm not the president of black America. He says that explicitly. Um, but he, he, there is a, in an implicit um, suggestion or, or, or perception that he will foreground and prioritize issues of racial inequality because of his experience as a black man in America. And when he didn't, when instead he prioritized issues of like economic stability after a recession, of national security in the wake of the war on terrorism, et cetera, um, the, suddenly when racial injustice continues to happen for eight years under a black president, if a black president can't address racial inequality with the powers of the presidency, then who can and who will? And that punch in the gut is um, it cannot be understated. Uh, there, there, there was a sense that having descriptive representation in the White House, uh, Kamala Harris said when she was run, running for president, um, it matters who's in those rooms. That, that is, there is a real sense of that uh, among, and, and was a real sense of that in Black America when Obama became president. And even though I, I know that he thought about racial inequality and all the conversations he was having, having about the future of the country, if he led with it, uh, it was a problem, and and I'll sort of conclude. I, I could talk forever about this, but I'll I'll sort of wrap it up by by where you finished and talking about the part in the book where Skip Gates gets arrested at his own home, and Obama says the Cambridge police acted stupidly, and white Americans his, his approval rate with them plummeted below fifty percent and never recovered and stayed as high with Black Americans as it was prior to the election. Six months into his presidency, he learned that if I talk about race. Um, I am I'm going to lose political capital without accomplishing things in the policy world. And he made the trade-off to foreground policy issues and downplay race until he was reelected. And then he started speaking forthrightly about race again in a way that he hadn't since before his presidency. When he said Trayvon Martin could be my, you know, could have been my son. He paid a penalty for that, but he didn't have elections to win afterwards. Um, and so he was more willing to be uh, outspoken on these issues that he was more muted on during uh, his campaigning and and um, first first uh, administration. The, the, I promise the last thing I'll say on this is, is it wasn't just on race. Remember, this was the guy that couldn't quite get there on same-sex marriage yet until after he was reelected in 2012. And then, um, you know, 2013, 14 shows up and now he's in favor of it. And then, um, you know, is in support of Obergefell. That wasn't, in my mind, a personal transformation. It was a political one because he recognized it was more important for him to be in the chair for all of these policy discussions than for him to speak forthrightly about race, about same-sex marriage, which would have harmed his ability to govern effectively or even win re-election. So the disappointment felt by folks like Coates and others was just the, the crashing to back down to earth after the reality of electoral politics and media and, and policy framing, et cetera, um, hit all of us in the mouth in, in a way that we, um, I don't think we were prepared for. That's beautifully put. I, I would just quickly add that uh, while it's very understandable that um, people had that reaction and that their hopes were disappointed, from the point of view of a non-Black person, 
I felt at the time that the expectations that were put on Obama were way exaggerated. I mean, oh, he, yes. was, he was just a politician. He was right. not a demigod. And, you know, the thought that this was some sort of epical event, his election, I mean, it was very important in the scheme of things in American history that we finally surmounted that barrier. But, but, uh, but you know, he was being portrayed as the light worker, as the miracle man and so forth. He, nobody could possibly fulfill the expectations that were put on on him. But let me, right. let me ask you to um, just close out with some reflections on, on um, the end of your book where you talk about some suggestions. One of them that I'm very much in favor of is the idea of national service. Could you just spend a couple minutes on that topic and its potential uh, to help unite a very riven nation? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the, the, in the conclusion of the book, I talk about these five recommendations that would create conditions that would facilitate the, arrive, the arisal, the arising of a multiracial national solidarity. There's democratic reform, civic education, national service, deliberative democracy, and the, the critical importance of transformative leadership. Um, all of these things, but in particular national service, um, they, they do number, a, a bunch of things around society, but the main thing they do is that they introduce Americans to one another, that they, they, they allow civic friendships to form among democratic strangers. A lot of what's happening in our country is that we are self-segregating, especially along racial and ethnic lines, uh, to the point where I, I think the last study I saw said that the number of Americans that have zero or one friend of a different race or ethnicity in their immediate circle is something like 80 to 90%. And only 10 to 20% of us have more than one person of a different race or ethnicity in our in our circle. And so we are um, we don't know one another. And so when someone says the immigrants are the reason why that factory closed and you don't have a job, uh, black people are the reason why your crime is so high in your neighborhood and why taxes are so high because they're lazy and they want social safety net programs, you know, and um, and those immigrants from from China and Japan, they're the reason why, um, you know, they're 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 getting into the best schools and they're taking your kids spots and and uh, working in all the tech companies companies and stealing your intellectual property, et cetera, et cetera. And, and because we don't know people in those groups, the caricatures and the stereotypes, especially among those that may not have the level of education of us on this call, um, they are not as resilient to those divisive appeals because they have no real world exposure to the people that are being demonized. So what national service does is it pulls us out of our safety bubbles, out of our small social and, and homogenous social circles and forces us to get to know Americans from different communities, of different races, different faith backgrounds, different ethnicities, and work together for a project that serves all of our communities and the nation writ large. And I'm jaded by my experience in the military because the military does exactly this. And I still have resilient friendships across party lines, ideological lines, because of exposure to folks uh, and because that we 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 work, we work together for a, a a common mission or for a, a higher cause, uh, national service creates the environment for this to happen. And I don't know if we'll ever be able to mandate it, but if we can incentivize it um, in a way that's not just economic, but there's a sort of a sort of social incentive to participate in national solidarity, then I think we will begin to break down the, the barriers uh, between groups and be able to bridge across difference 
uh, and, and recognize both a person's group identity, but also their larger inclusion in this national identity uh, that, um, that I think is, is immediately and imminently important to the, the creation of a national solidarity that can hold the state accountable. Right. Um, well, and you did actually mention one of the ways that you could uh, offer incentives would be, you know, with with scholarships or things like that, that um, might be an incentive to, to do national service. I think you, am I wrong? You mentioned that there are quite a number of people who join the military exactly for that reason. That's but right. then as a side effect of having been in the military, they do have this experience of meeting Americans from all different walks of life. And, uh, and it improves their, their uh, perception of their fellow Americans. So that, that is true, but and, and I know we're almost at time, but th there is a difference for most of uh, folks who enlist in the military. Um, the, the financial incentives are a big deal, being able to buy, you know, housing uh, through the GI Bill um, and uh, and get loans for school. But um, if, if it's a financial incentives, those who don't need financial incentives, like the upper middle class, the rich, they've got no reason to participate in this. Now national service becomes a thing that poor kids do because they need more money for college, which when I graduated high school some almost 30 years ago, you either went to college or you went to work and it was the dumb kids, you know, the, or the problem kids that went to the military. And of course that was incorrect, but there was a social stigma um, among, uh, even among um, those who joined the military. So the difference is in the officer corps, there's a, a national prestige associated with being an officer in the military such that people who grew up very rich will still go to the military for four years or so in order to because there's a social there there's a um a, a reputational advantage mm -hmm. for serving in the military especially as an officer would suggest you have a college education etc and so if we only do the financial piece and don't consider the reputational or social capital to be gained through national service then um, I think it'll become a program for those uh, who don't have means, and that won't create connections with those who do have means, and that may exacerbate some of the very divisions that um, that that divisive politicians latch onto, that they use racism race, racism to, to further worsen, uh, but won't create the connections that will turn into good policy. Interesting. Okay, thanks for that clarification, and uh, thanks for a great discussion. Uh, really appreciate it. Great book, and and thank you. Uh, we now turn to the final segment. Ted, you're welcome to join in if there's one particular thing you want to draw attention to. But in our last segment, we go around the horn and uh, highlight or lowlight something from the week. Um, let me start with Linda Chavez. Well, I am going to continue the discussion of race and my highlighting or lowlighting uh, something. And that is a new report that is out from the National Center for Health Statistics. There has been a decline in longevity among Americans. It's about 18 months between 2019 and 2020. Much of that, of course, is driven uh, by the pandemic. But one of the interesting uh, sort of subcategories within this very long report is that uh, Hispanics lost three years in their projected uh, longevity between 2019 and 2020. Black Americans lost 2.9 years. I will say uh, the positive on the Hispanic uh, uh, figures is that Hispanics are the longest lived groups um, in the United States subgroup. Uh, they had an average of 81.8 years prior to the pandemic and have dropped down to what was uh, the average uh, white figure of 78.8. But uh, I will uh, send this so you can post it, but it's a 
a long study put out by the uh, National uh, Health Statistics uh, Center that's part of the CDC, and it's well worth uh, reading for anybody who wants to understand um, what's happening in terms of longevity in the U.S. Interesting. Damon Linker. Um, well, uh, wh what I want to offer today is um, a kind of walk of shame award uh, to two people who uh, are very prominent in my Twitter feed. Uh, these are Glenn Greenwald and Matt Taibbi. Uh, both accomplished journalists who have done very good work in the past, even if some of, on a lot of issues, they're very far to my left, but uh, they're, they're a useful kind of journalistic gadflies. Um, but I did want to single them out because there was a very odd thing going on, on my, in my Twitter feed about a week ago. Last, that was the week when um, uh, Mark Milley was much in the news for uh, giving some interviews in which he talked about how worried he was in the weeks leading up to uh, January 6th about uh, the potential for a coup led by the President of the United States at the time, Donald Trump. This adds to our litany of, uh, you know, of the litany of information that we have about that day, which I frankly think in the longer scheme of things, we have not yet begun to really assimilate uh, into the country and our civic life, the gravity of what took place that day and its possible implications for the future. So while most of the people I follow on Twitter, many of them journalists, were you know, busily, anxiously digesting this information about Millie and what that adds to our understanding of what was going on in the weeks leading up to the insurrection of January 6th. We had also Greenwald and Taibbi tweeting incessantly through those days about a different story. This was the story of the Biden administration tentatively trying to work with Facebook to try to tamp down political extremism on its platform, which, as we all know, has, has played a significant role in whipping up uh, extremism in our politics over the last uh, decade or so. And so while everyone else was worried that, oh, my gosh, we kind of dodged a bullet here almost like had a brush with genuine authoritarianism, the collapse of the peaceful transfer of power in the United States. These two individuals were talking about how actually we're already an authoritarian dictatorship because Biden is daring to attempt to address the problem of uh, extremism in American life. So uh, bravo to both of these guys, Glenn Greenwald and Matt Taibbi. You win the Walk of Shame Award of the Week. <laughs> yeah, uh, good one, Damon. Uh, uh, Glenn Greenwald manages to be the kind of person who can be a radical left wing, but also soft on Trump uh, person. And uh, yes, he's Tucker he, Carlson's favorite leftist. <laughs> that's for sure. Um, Bill Galston. Yeah, after a brief deviation from type last week, I'm going to return to type and cite a very interesting survey that appeared a few days ago from uh, an outfit run by Kristen Soltis Anderson, who is uh, a prominent and very talented uh, Republican-oriented survey researcher. And she asked a very interesting question. Uh, if we had a multi-party system in the United States, how many parties would we have? 
and what would they be like? And to make a long story very short, she said that we essentially break down into five parties in this country, sort of a populist nationalist party symbolized by Trump, a Reagan conservative party symbolized by Trump's vice president, uh, Mike Pence, and a Sella party symbolized by uh, uh, Michael Bloomberg, a center-left labor party symbolized by Biden, and a left-oriented Green Party symbolized by, you get it, you guessed it, AOC. Uh, and uh, if you look at the party coalitions, how that maps on to the two existing political parties, uh, you find that the nationalist populist wing of what is the Republican Party has made huge gains over the past two years at the expense of the Reagan Conservative Party, which is now a distinct minority within the party. You also find on the Democratic side that the Biden Labor Party is three times as large as either the Bloomberg Party or the AOC Party which is a pretty parsimonious explanation as to why Bloomberg crashed and burned uh, and why, uh, you know, and, and why Bernie didn't get any farther uh, and why Joe Biden became the party's nominee and then the president. And this also gives us some guidance as to the stresses and strains within the coalitions of the two parties. Okay, thank you for that. Ted, did you have anything you wanted to mention at the very end here? Yeah, very quickly. I actually agree with Damon on the um, how uh, General Milley has been in the news recently here. And I've been thinking um, not just about the short exchange he had with Representative uh, Gates around critical race theory, um, which I think thought Milley's answer was excellent there, but also these recent you know interviews that are coming out about what would have happened had there been a coup, et cetera. And there's an article in The Atlantic by uh, Corey, I guess it's, it's Sheikh Shaki, um, what's happening to our apolitical military. And I do think we're at a point um, where we where we should really put some deep thought into civil milita civil military relations and where it's going. Um, the, the generals are being demonized. Uh, the military, which used to be this, this uh, the, the one thing that everyone agreed was a good thing, is now being weaponized by by parties or political actors in different ways. And um, and while the military has always been a political entity, uh, the way it's taking shape now is is cause for some concern. And I think um, I think it's. Uh, unpacking some of those ideas and, and thinking about this more deeply is, is worth the nation doing. Thank you for that. By the way, Corey Shockey, frequent guest on Beg to Differ. Um, okay, I would li also like to do a walk of shame this week. Um, apologies if anybody got to this last week when I was out, but uh, the American Booksellers Association, uh, which has uh, is is a business but has proclaimed for ever that it is all about free thought and uh, free expression and the uh, First Amendment, um, issued the most um, humiliating apology um, for sending out a, uh, a sales pitch for a book called Irreversible Damage, um, that, which is uh, which is a book by a journalist uh, discussing the the question of uh, of trans identity among teenage girls, um, and so so the ABA uh, announced in this apology that what they had done by advertising this book for sale was a serious, violent, 
incident that goes against ABA's policies, values, and everything we believe and support. It is inexcusable. Now, this is a book, okay? Um, it, I, I was uh, amused by somebody on Twitter uh, who said, responding to the idea that uh, a book was, that words were violence, that a book was violence, he said, yeah, the ABA is right. I bought that thing, and when, it, when I got it home, it beat me up. Um, look, um, you can you can disagree vehemently with the thesis of the book. You can believe. Uh, by the way, a lot of people said it was it, it was hate speech that it was anti-trans. Uh, I have it on my shelf. I've read about thirty pages of it. It the author explicitly says that she you know does think that the trans identity is a real thing, and she has no problem with. Uh, people who want to adopt that identity or who have that identity. But what she is arguing is that there is a, a phenomenon of contagion among teenage girls. She reports it very um, uh, dispassionately. She says that it does seem to go in group friend groups uh, that after lots of exposure to this kind of thing online and uh, that it's something to be concerned about when the consequences are so lifelong. Anyway, one would have thought that in a free society, making an argument, um, any argument, uh, would be greeted with counter-argument. But we are in a moment when the attempt to shut things down and to, and to call speech violence is pretty far advanced uh, when the American Booksellers Association uh, issues such an apology uh, for a book. Uh, that is not a healthy place for a free society to be. And with that, I want to thank Ted Johnson for joining us. I want to thank you all for listening. Uh, we appreciate those ratings and reviews. Um, and uh, I can be reached at Mona Charon at the Bulwark.com. And uh, we will return next week as every week. 